all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy, where the doctor's always in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your Southern Remedy program, where you get to call in with any and all questions that you might have to prepare yourself for the big day of Thanksgiving and other medical problems as well. Uh, but we might be, uh, if we don't have a lot of callers, uh, we might uh, squeeze some of those uh, tips for um how to uh, to make the best out of your holiday season from a medical standpoint. But the number to call right now for any type of medical question, whether that is a new symptom, new medication, or diagnoses that you've been given, if you're not able to call in, please email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great week. If you're listening live, this is the day before Thanksgiving. And Certainly a lot of uh, a lot of good things that go on during Thanksgiving celebrations, but uh, also some things to sort of watch out for, and we'll maybe cover a lot of those. The first one that everybody comes up with is like, you know, how do I best navigate eating during Thanksgiving? And keep in mind, this is one day, okay? So, um, you know, it's not going to ruin everything for the most part unless you have some particular medical condition that would preclude you from eating certain things. Certainly you want to keep that in mind. But for the most part, you know, one meal, as long as you, uh, you know, use a little moderation with that is not going to end all diets. Uh, that's usually more of a uh, progressive thing uh, that uh, that can happen. So uh, just keep that in mind. You certainly, you know, it, at the Thanksgiving gatherings that I'm used to, there is a lot of food and there's a lot of choices, but there's usually a lot of time to eat it. So spreading it out um, can also be sort of an advantage depending on, you know, sort of what your schedule is. And if you're, uh, if you're like my house, we end up eating Thanksgiving dinner um, for about five days. Um, that's about how much <laughs> of, of food that we have left over. So just think about that, sort of uh, pace yourself on doing that. And uh, just remember, you could eat a whole lot of food and be sick and not uh, not to enjoy the day, or you can just eat a little bit of it at a time and, and enjoy it with other people. Let's go to John from Vicksburg. Good morning, John. Yes, good morning, Dr. Jimmy. I have a question regarding NSAIDs and nausea, yeah. and opiates <clears throat> and nausea. Yep. For years, I was able to take them. Now, all of a sudden, I get nauseated, dizzy. What can I do, or have you developed any tricks 
or schemes that will help a person take those things. Yeah, I can pass that along. Certainly, I hadn't developed anything myself, but uh, but I can I can pass on some things that might help out. So nausea is, or or even just feeling just some discomfort in your stomach area, um, can be associated with several different medications, and there's different reasons for that. The two specifically that you mentioned, the NSAIDs, and those were things like um, ibuprofen, uh, Advil. Um, those kinds of, you know, over-the-counter medications or even prescription ones. So there are some others that are in sort of similar categories, things like Celebrex or Meloxicam, that they can cause some nausea when you take them. And uh, also, you mentioned other pain medications, certainly those that have oxycodone in them or have other narcotics. And there's two basic mechanisms that can can sort of cause those problems any medication you know some people just get nauseated when they take medications on an empty stomach and that's really just because of uh, not having sort of a balanced um, amount of material in there that some people are just a little bit more sensitive to certain things that they eat Um, and that includes medications. But in the cases of these two types of medications, certainly NSAIDs have been known for a long time to irritate the gastric lining, the lining of the stomach. And they do what they really interfere with. And it's usually not the first time you take it. If you, if you, if you get immediately nauseated when you take it, it's probably more of just taking that pill or that capsule uh, or tablet. So, uh, But if it goes on after taking it for a while... It can interfere with that protective covering that's on your stomach wall that protects it against the acid production. So the the pH of our stomach is around 2, which is pretty acidic to break down food. It's supposed to do that. But in cases where you have a break in the normal mucus layer and and all the different materials that are uh, sort of produced on that inner lining of the stomach, if you have a break in that or the body's not able to do it, like if you're taking NSAIDs, then that can put you at risk for having some nausea and gastritis where you're you really are feeling sort of a pain or a gnawing feeling in your stomach or even your esophagus. So that's one mechanism. Now the the oxycodone medic- medications oftentimes produce nausea and that can be in a, through a central mechanism when you take them that they can affect, you know, just it sort of activates those centers in your brain a little bit or it can be sort of a local irritation and they can also slow down how quickly food particles move through your GI tract. As far as ways to deal with it, taking both those medications with food sometimes helps, and that takes care of everything. Because, again, you're sort of buffering that local effect of them when they hit the stomach. And that's generally that's, that is recommended for most medications. There are some medications like thyroid medications that don't, uh, you know, they don't uh, do too well as far as absorption and certainly you have to watch out other things that you take with it. And then beyond that, you know, you might have to take other medications um, while you're taking those. If, if NSAIDs are required for a certain amount of time, first of all, just, you know, keeping in mind that it's best if you're just taking theirs for a limited amount of time. I know a lot of patients are taking it for, for good reasons longer than that, that you might need to take another medication to help out with some of those side effects. Like sometimes for some people who just have nausea, taking something like Pepsid 
uh, or uh, even Prilosec or Omeprazole, those medications can decrease that that gastric pH or actually increase the gastric pH, decrease the amount of acid in the stomach. And that can okay. help out. That can help out. But those are, yeah, a couple of things. But the simplest thing is just try it with a little bit of food when you take it, and that might alleviate 90% of your symptoms right there. Let me ask you, what about Zofran? Someone told me yeah. Zofran. Yeah, Zofran, Zofran's a great medication. It was initially developed as uh, a nausea-type medication to, to prescribe for nausea around surgeries. So, for instance, you know, it's pretty common with anesthesia. If you go into surgery and you've, you've got that sort of uh, – you're coming out of surgery and you get nauseated, again, a side effect of some of the anesthetic medications – that medication was derived to treat that and to treat patients who were being treated for cancer. Um, and it, the, a good thing about it is it's less sedating, much less sedating than, say, Phenergan, which is that, that older medication that we used to give right. it quite a bit and has much less side effects uh, than, than others. And it's, it is a good medication to take, particularly if you have you know, just really intense nausea. Um, and and certainly, if it's medication related, it should work just fine. One quick one: Should you take all of that together, like Pepsi or Prilosec, with the instead, or would you take one? I th- yeah, you period. could you could take it all together because again, most of these the antacid medications uh, like like Pepsid or th- those are going to last for about twelve hours, eight to twelve hours. Okay. So if you wanted to take those, say, 30 minutes before you took it, if you've got the time and you can remember, I have a hard time remembering stuff like that. So uh, I think that would be fine to sort of protect you before you started taking it. Yeah. All right, Dr. Jimmy. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday. You too, John. And thank you for calling. And I know a lot of people, they um, tell me, hey, I'm always, uh, what time are you on? And I tell them 11 on Wednesdays. And they say, you know, I really don't have time to to listen to you. Then is there another time that it replays or, and I tell them that probably the easiest thing to do is to just go to your favorite uh, podcasting app and look for Southern Remedy. You can download uh, the Southern Remedy app there and listen to all of our programs at your leisure uh, as you're driving to work or home in the afternoon. You can certainly replay those. Sometimes our listeners only get a little bit of a snippet of something and then they uh, write to us and say, hey, how do I get, get that uh, the, the last part of that conversation or the first part of that conversation? Is there a way I can go back and listen to that? And that's an excellent way to do that. You could always go to the archive, too, if you go to mpbonline.org and search for Southern Remedy. We do have those programs archived uh, pretty quickly after they air. Back to Thanksgiving, which is this weekend. You know, we talked a little bit about food. And um, don't forget, with a lot of people usually coming in from uh, quite a distance, I know with my own family, they're coming across several different states to get here. Um, And if you've got younger kids with older people, certainly you want to mix together and have a good time. But you can also, um, you can uh, run into problems with infectious diseases and uh, different uh, things that you get exposed to. So keep in mind that you want to wash your hands. Um, and uh, if you do have somebody that's a little bit sicker, that uh, you might want to have some conversations there. Or if yourself, if you're coughing your head off coming into Thanksgiving, just make sure that everybody is aware of that. Maybe some special health um, precautions that you can take to um, to make sure everybody's staying healthy. But hand washing is very important and certainly uh 
uh, doing that before meals and uh, in the preparation of those meals is incredibly important. And as you, uh, you know, a lot of people have asked in the past, you know, how, um, what happens with that just feeling of intense tiredness after you eat your Thanksgiving meal? And uh, that's a good one. It's one that I experience quite frequently. And, you know, there's different compounds in the foods that we eat that can intensify that sometimes. Most of you probably have heard that, um, that, uh, you know, uh, serotonin in, uh, particularly in things like turkey can do that. And, uh, that's true, but in general, you know, just eating a heavy meal and then sort of chilling out afterwards, uh, we're usually not doing some of the similar things that we do at work where we're out moving around and going around different places. But, um, that is something that is a true thing. And you basically, Sort of need to listen to your body. If it's saying, hey, we need to take a little rest and uh, deal with all this food you just ate, um, listen to your body do that. Just uh, hang out. It's always nice to see how many people are snoozing around the room after eating. I think that is a indication of success of the meal. Uh, we ought to have some kind of factor with that uh, about what percentage of people uh, do that. But that's just uh, something to keep in mind. Not anything wrong with that per se. Uh, it's just sort of the body's natural way of, of dealing with a heavy meal like that. Garth from Tupelo. Good morning, Garth. Hi. How are you, Dr. Jimmy? Good. Thank you for calling. Um, I've got a question. Well, I, I, actually, I could talk to you for a whole session, I think, with the issues that affect my wife. But this is something that's kind of trivial, but it is worrying her quite a bit. She's uh, about 58 and um, has some health issues. But the main thing that's sort of on her mind at the moment is that every time she uses the bathroom, she notices that her hair is coming out quite a lot, and uh, she feels like she's losing a lot of hair. I wondered if you had any thoughts about what might be causing that to happen. Yeah, several different things can cause hair loss, particularly as we get older. Um, one is... Uh, is is basically it is sort of a natural cycle that hair goes through. So a hair shaft will, you know, produce a hair, it'll grow. Once it reaches a certain length, it'll sort of shed that and then regrow hair. And there's different times in your life that that's intensified. And particularly in women, those are very sensitive to hormone, hormonal, hormonal changes. Sorry. Um, And, you know, around, uh, the biggest one is pregnancy that we see this. So typically you get increased hair growth in all of those follicles that are stimulated by the different uh, amounts of estrogen and progesterone uh, that are required for, for um, you know, for, for development of the baby. And then after that, um, all those hair follicles are withdrawn from that. And it's very common to lose a lot of hair after pregnancy. Same kind of thing in menopause is that that goes on too, and hair loss is certainly common there. But there's some other things to keep in mind too. One is, is low thyroid levels. So your thyroid gland that sits on the anterior of your neck up front, it uh, is sort of a butterfly-shaped or H-shaped gland that's over your vo- vocal, uh, uh, your vocal cords. Uh, your voice box there, your pharynx. And basically it produces a hormone that that controls your metabolism. And if you're not getting enough of that production, then hair loss is one of the most of of the common symptoms that can go along with that. And that's an easy test to to check for, uh, a little blood test to check for. And if that is normal, 
then certainly there's some other minor vitamin deficiencies that sometimes can go along with that. I've never felt like those were very effective or in the diagnosis or treatment, though, of my patients that had that. And usually if we've gone through, you know, that we don't have a good explanation for it, if the TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone level is normal, then at that point I would say, hey, I need to like consult my dermatology friends for this. And don't forget, dermatologists, they are all about skin and all of its components. So that includes the nails and the hair. So uh, that's also something to think about. And then there's other, sometimes you can get autoimmune processes that are patchy where different parts of the scalp, you can have hair loss. Sometimes you can get fungal infections like ringworm that uh, usually younger individuals will get that. Um, and it looks sort of characteristic there. Uh, there's a there's a whole handful of other conditions that can cause um, hair loss, but at that point, I would say a dermatologist is probably your best bet if you've uh, eliminated some of those more common things like hypothyroidism. Yeah, that that sounds very interesting actually about the thyroid because she has been concerned a little bit about her thyroid at point. Um, it it won't be menopause because she's had a hysterectomy some years ago, so I don't think that would be the cause. Um, could I follow up with something else I've just thought of? She also says at the moment she has this sort of like metallic taste in her mouth when she wakes up. Uh, we think that we were overdosing on zinc at one point, um, which may not be a sensible move, but but we stopped doing, she stopped taking all sorts of vitamins and including zinc now at the moment, but she still feels she has this taste of like a metal uh, like a like a sort of metally taste in her mouth. Hmm. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, and some of the some of the vitamins or minerals in particular can taste like that. So it was it is a possibility that she was getting a little bit too much of the zinc. But if you've withdrawn that now and she's still getting that, there there are some changes to taste that go along with infections, uh, with yeah. other things that uh, are more chronic diseases in the body. And I, yeah, I can tell you, I used to sort of, you know, say, okay, well, that's interesting when my patients told me about that. But over, over time, I've really picked up on that and tried to follow that up with, with a little bit broader, you know, labs and look at the patient to try to see if there's other systemic things. Because it may not be things necessarily that she's putting in her mouth, but you could, your taste buds can be activated by things that are going on in your body. And it's right. not very specific, but it, it mainly, when I hear that symptom, I, I back up a little bit in my thought process and think, okay, are we dealing with anything infectious? Are we dealing, dealing with anything autoimmune? Are we dealing with anything that's a malignancy? You know, just to get a very broad view and ask some really detailed questions around those types of things, because I've, I have found, not in everybody, but in a lot of patients, there, there is this change in taste that goes along with some of those. Well, that's another interesting thing to thought. Thank you so much. I mean, she has some issues because she has, uh, doesn't have an inferior vena cava that we discovered recently. Wow. Recently. And hmm. so she's one of the rare people without, with that uh, problem. And uh, I think uh, she has suffered a little bit with blood flow around her body. Not to mention all the other things. She, she's a bit of a unicorn, really. <laughs> Thank you for your time. I really appreciate talking to you. Um, and I've been wanting to do that for some time about some of the issues. So maybe if, if you have more time in the future, I'll give you another call back and talk about some other things. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Great. 
Absolutely. Thank you for calling, Garth, and uh, we uh, wish you a good uh, holiday season. Let's go to Elizabeth in Kansas. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. What's your question this um, morning? Well, my question is I've been having a lot of abdominal pain on my upper area of my stomach, mm-hmm. and it's been like every time, no matter what I eat, um, I get bloated, and the pain, it just gets so intense. I have lost like maybe 20 pounds since I've been having this issue. Um, I have went to lactose tolerance milk. I went to um, gluten-free on on food, and that that is not helping. At times, it just I um, position into a fetal position because it's so painful. Um, there are times with my bowels, I've been having problems like sometimes I'll have diarrhea, sometimes constipation. So I went to the doctor because I thought maybe I had IBSE, but he claims that I do not, I don't have that. So he did some blood tests, and there was nothing that showed that I had infection. Um, so my problem, my question is, what else can I do for this abdominal pain? It does not go away. Yeah, that can be a sneaky one that can uh, – it's incredibly difficult to to manage and sometimes difficult to diagnose what's going on. Certainly, it sounds like they've looked at some of the more common things. And I think you I, I, you cut out just a little bit. I think you said uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Is that what you were talking about? Well, that's what I thought, and that's how come I went to the doctor and see whether if I had um, IBSC. And he stated he did a colonoscopy and – he did um, GI on my stomach, and mm-hmm. then he did an, um, went through inside my abdomen and see whether he could find anything. But so far, I didn't. He said that everything was okay, that he was, I didn't have no cancer or pull-ups. So I don't know. Um, he's like, we don't, we don't know what else is going on. Yeah, and, and you know, Irritable bowel syndrome is one that we don't have a definitive test for, so it is a a diagnosis of exclusion. In other words, you have to exclude other things. So it doesn't surprise me uh, that you might still have that and um, because there's not really a test for that. Now, inflammatory bowel disease, that's a little bit different, and then there's a combination of test and the colonoscopy and the the uh, EGD that you describe, where they actually go down and look, yeah. can help with that. But there's certain other things too. Sometimes you can have bloating from uh, uh, you can develop over time uh, gluten sen- uh, insensitivity, um, and most people you know know the term celiac uh, disease or yeah. or just gluten sensitivity. So there are sort of a progression of that. And I've had a lot of patients now that if they, you know, look for what foods they're eating that have gluten in them, once they, uh, once they avoid that, their symptoms get better. That may be uh, the simplest thing to do. There are a couple of, of tests that they may or may not have, have uh, tested you for, for full-blown celiac okay. disease, but sensitivity is the biggest one. And I would do that. I think that would be the next step if you haven't already and just say, okay, what are my foods? What what foods have gluten in it? How can I get rid of that? And then see what, give yourself a trial of about two weeks, see if you feel better on that. And if you do, 
then you got your diagnosis and you sort of know what to do is to continue to avoid those types of foods. But see, I've already done that. I have already been on gluten-free and lactose-free on that because I'm trying to figure out what what's triggering. So then it's wheat. I cannot eat nothing that contains any kind of sugar or else it put a lot of pressure on my lower area and let me ask so I can't do that either let me ask a couple more questions so do you have di- okay. do you have diabetes no okay and um, are you taking any weight loss medications no okay so I and I just bring that up because both of those conditions yeah. sometimes you can do that the the other thing that I would suggest that you might want to bring up with your physicians is a gastric emptying study if they haven't done that. Um, and that's looking at something called um, uh, gastroparesis, which is typically it's okay. associated with diabetes, but it doesn't have to be. There are some patients that can have that. And basically, they their stomach just doesn't move food through in an appropriate manner. And it sort of sits there for a while. As it sits there, you feel the bloated symptoms, the nausea symptoms that you're you're describing. So that may be another test to do just to sort of see if it might be something like gastroparesis, a gastric emptying study. Gastric emptying study? Yeah. Okay. Simple, simple thing to do. Uh, you basically, they'll give you some stuff to swallow, and uh, they'll see um, uh, it basically has a radio-opaque material in it so that they can take an x-ray of it and then see how long it takes to move out of your stomach. So they'll take some sequential pictures of it over time, over a couple of hours, actually, to see what happens to it. Okay. Do I have to remove that that with um, an IV contrast? Uh, no. No IV contrast. Okay. It's okay. There's a different type of contrast that is an oral okay. one that you would swallow with that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, well, I might mention that to the doctor and see what, what we can do about it, because I don't know, like I said, I already lost like 20 pounds in here, like in a month. Yeah, if you've lost that much weight, I would say at the very least you need a second opinion on it at this point. But okay. mention, mention that yeah. study and see what they say. Okay, all righty. Thank you, dear. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have or somebody near and dear to you might have. I'm going to go to Ois. Did I get that name right, Ois? It's uh, Lewis. Lewis. Oh, my my bad. Sorry about that. I thought that was, man, I'm going to mess this one up there. Lewis, what, what question do you have today? Uh, well, I was, um, a couple of years ago, I did a stress test. And uh, the doctor found that I have a leaking mitral valve, mm-hmm. uh, mitral regurgitation. He said uh, at the time it was fine, nothing to worry about, just something to keep an eye on. Um, within the past uh, probably six months, I've noticed things that just don't seem right. And yesterday, I was moving a box into the attic. It probably weighed about 50 pounds or so. Um, and once I got the box into the attic, I had to stop at the top of the stairs and come back down. I was out of breath and I began to hyperventilate. Mm -hmm. And after that, I I was done for the rest of the day, just felt very fatigued and things like that seem to happen quite often when I exert myself. Is that something that could be related to the mitral valve or... 
Not if, at all. If they've... Well, it's so, you know, from a, a mitral valve standpoint, so th- I know you probably know this, but just for our other listeners, so the mitral valve is the valve between the left atrium and left ventricle. So it's between one of the top chambers of the heart and the lower chambers of the heart. And it's the last uh, valve within the heart system before that blood is pumped out. And then it goes through the, the atrial, uh, the uh, aortic valve, sorry, the aortic valve after that. So the mitral valve um, is really to make sure blood doesn't backflow into that upper chamber and then back into the lungs. And there's two different things that usually goes along with that. One is just mitral valve prolapse. And that means that that valve sort of balloons back up into the cavity of the left atrium, but it doesn't really leak. So there's not a whole lot of blood flow that's going backwards through that. It closes appropriately. It's just sort of prolapsing. It's ballooning back up into the atrium. That is usually a benign condition that unfortunately is also a lot of people will say, I feel it and I get sort of anxious with it. So there is an association of of this feeling of anxiety and palpitations where your heart's sort of fluttering, but it's usually not a serious thing from the heart standpoint itself. It just feels that way. Now, mitral regurgitation is when that valve doesn't close effectively and blood flow is going back up into the atrium. And the, the, the way that you, you look at that, a stress test, there's a couple of different stress tests that you can do that can look at that and then an echocardiogram. And uh, sometimes they'll do both because it really shows you that valve area. It shows you how much blood is going back up into the atrium. If it's mitral valve prolapse, it, I would say these symptoms are probably don't go along with that. But if you had mitral regurgitation and they said, you know, that's what you have, it might warrant some further investigation. But and things can change, too. Like those valves, they are attached to the walls of the muscle of the heart. And sometimes you can have, you know, stretching of those, if you want to think of it as sort of little ropes that are attached to the wall of the heart to help anchor them down uh, with time. Or you might have damage to the interior wall of the heart. So, you know, the symptoms you're giving me with that diagnosis, I would at least, unless they just did this test on you, I, I would just at least run it by them because if that mitral valve is there's some some progression of it, um, they need to check that out, and that's an easy test to do. That's that's something they can do probably in a you know cardiology's uh, cardiology office pretty quick with an echocardiogram. If the blood flow is not regurgitating back up into the ventricle, that's probably not what your symptoms are coming from. Okay, I appreciate it. All right, Lewis, thank you for calling. Food poisoning, please. I hope nobody gets food poisoning, and I hope I don't bring that down by discussing it on anybody. But it can happen, and usually it takes two different forms. So when we generally speak about food poisoning, that's usually a self-limiting gastroenteritis uh, where you ingest either the production of bacteria that have been inadequate of food that's either inadequately prepared or it's been sitting out for long periods of time and bacteria have sort of taken up shop and started started uh, having a little party of their own on that food. And uh, the bacteria themselves, um, if you ingest them, sometimes they can cause problems once they get in there. That's usually, again, a self-limiting condition of uh, about 24 hours, sometimes a little bit longer than that. 
Um, and but the other one is preformed toxin. So in the the classic potato salad event, which I know is not a big one, I think with most people this time of year, it's more more so in the warmer months. But hey, we're in Mississippi; it's always warm. Um, but that's where you have something that has been prepared appropriately, and then it sits outside. And uh, and and if you have bacteria that produce a toxin, and certain types of bacteria do that, that toxin stays there. And uh, it some of it is uh, either heat stable or or uh, is is sort of a little bit harder to to get rid of even if you heat stuff back up, and that toxin can cause those effects. Usually, that's a little bit more self limited. Say six eight hours of of the symptoms of gastroenteritis. Nobody likes that. Biggest thing is making sure that you're hydrated, that you can uh, at least keep stuff down if you can't. Um, most people, if they don't have any chronic medical conditions and kids for that matter too, do okay. Um, you know, in the in the first uh, a couple of hours at least, uh, rest helps. Certainly, there's some medications like we mentioned Zofran, other for a, a different type of situation, but that would be a good one to take. Or Finnegan that um, that might can you know decrease those symptoms long enough for you to keep stuff down. But those two things are are uh, you know, again very common. Uh, with gatherings where you have a lot of food, uh, and uh, but viral infections sometimes can do that, but um, those take a little bit more incubation time usually. Uh, in bacteria, the ones that you see uh, the day of or day after, so just keep that in mind. Again, food preparation is good, a good idea. Making sure it doesn't sit out too long on the countertop that you put it back in the fridge so that you don't grow those other little things and give them a uh, an opportunity to party with you. You don't want bacteria doing that. Let's go to Virginia from Meridian. Good morning, Virginia. Good morning. Um, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in April of 2022. Mm-hmm. And by this year in April and maybe a couple of months later, I was in remission. Uh, but I have bone damage in my back. And I've been told that I'm going to just have to have pain for the rest of my life. Hmm. Is there something that I can do to relieve some of this? It usually happens after I've been active, nothing more than cooking or picking up something that's rather heavy. Um, And I am on Zameda, which is a Mm bone-building medication. Um, And I don't know, I, I think I'm a little hesitant to do exercises because I don't know if I'm going to do more damage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It can be very, I I get the hesitation because I've seen that in my own patients who've had multiple myeloma. Um, Yeah, there are some things that you can do. And uh, I know you're very, it sounds like you're very up to date on your your multiple myeloma diagnosis and sort of the things that are going on. Multiple myeloma for the rest of us. So that is a a type of, uh, of white cell blood disorder where the white blood cells that help to make um, antibodies, they sort of go rogue and they start to make their other these other proteins that are really ineffective. And it can, because they're not doing their job that they're supposed to, patients can come up with, a lot of times they'll pick it up on just a routine uh, blood check where they're looking at the white blood cells and, and a couple other things. Sometimes it's in combination with some kidney function because of some of the complications. But basically... Um, that's with them not doing their job. You can have problems with the immune system. And these these rogue cells, our, our blood cells, all of them are made in our bone marrow. 
And once you get a lot of them doing that with multiple myeloma, these multiple myeloma cells, they basically are sort of eat away the bone and you get these these uh, almost like little bite marks. And when you look at it on X-ray on the bones or CT scan and um, even with good treatment like Virginia's having, you can still have those those places in the bones, you know, that were sort of replaced by these by these myeloma cells. They can it can persist and have pain because you oftentimes you can lose a little bit of mass with that. The the uh, there's several different medications. Virginia mentioned one of them to help rebuild that bone over time, but that is a long term process, and oftentimes the pain persists with that. Virginia, did did you were you referred to a pain clinic at one time when all of this first started? Yeah, but not since. That's right now. I'm trying to control it with arthritis strength Tylenol, which of course. But I, there are times when I can turn over in the bed and I feel like somebody's stabbing me in the back. Yeah. A couple of ideas. I do think that might be a good, um, just a, a check-in at this point, because there may be some things that they can do to help you with the pain. If if you get the okay from your doctor, though, I do think some types of exercise I would want to I wouldn't just jump into it. So I, I get the hesitancy that you have, but it will help to stabilize those bones. In other words, if you can do some some specific things that may be physical therapy or, or have uh, have evaluated you and have you doing it can help prevent further bone loss and it might even help strengthen those bones because you're putting a little bit of pressure on them but there may be some things to do i mean certainly we know that if you have this type of bone loss or bone damage if you do sit around and you don't do as much it's going to get worse even if you are taking up some of the other you know bone stabilizing agents um, the other thing that you're probably already taking is, is calcium and vitamin D. You want to have those constituents that the, the, the cells that build up that bone need to, to sort of build that back up. But I think it would be worthwhile to talk to uh, somebody in a pain clinic situation uh, that, uh, you know, referral to them just to check in with them, see if there's anything you can do and ask your doctor, how much exercise can I do? And will you send me to physical therapy to design a program specifically for me? Okay. That was going to be my next move. <laughs> yeah. Try to get into physical therapy some way. Of course, I'm I'm also old. I'm 84. Even even better to go to physical therapy. Even better to go to physical yep. therapy. We know that that is very effective. Don't write yourself off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help. Sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling, Virginia. All right, we're going to go to Bell from Columbus. Good morning, Bell. Hello. Yes, ma'am. You are on the air with Dr. Jimmy. Okay. I have a question about Eliquis. It's, it's a blood thinner. Yes, ma'am. Uh, it's very, very, very expensive, and I've been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Yes. And uh, that's the only medicine that they have given me so far, but it costs so much, I've got to go to something else. And I wonder if you'd recommend anything else would... Yeah, there there's some other solutions for that. So, you know, it is a blood thinner, like you mentioned, and it's one of the, the newer ones, which is why the expense is one of the reasons why the expense is so high. Um, so it's its advantages is that it has a little bit less of a risk of bleeding. 
um, than some of the older medications like Coumadin or Warfarin is another name for that. Um, and it's a lot easier to take than uh, some of the other ones that are injectable. So we did have a lot of these uh, anticoagulants or, um, or blood thinners that you had to inject twice a day or do even once a day. So this is something that's oral that you can take. But the price is a big a big deal. And the way I usually handle this is if I feel like a patient needs this, and certainly atrial fibrillation is one of those conditions that, that we uh, use Eliquis for to help prevent a blood clot formation because of the AFib, then um, I always get my pharmacist involved to look and see what their what my patient's insurance is to see what what it's going to cost. There are some cost saving mechanisms that are sometimes available um, that your pharmacist could probably help you navigate if you haven't already looked into that. If you have looked into that, there may be some other alternatives that may not give you as much protection, but they may give you some protection. So we have some other types of blood thinners. They're all a little different in how they act. But there's another, uh, like another example of one would be Plavix or aspirin. Yeah, I've heard it. Yep. I've heard of that and and Plavix, but I wasn't given a choice. They just put me on here, and if I'm if I've got it right, the AFib is not not really 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 bad. It's just that it comes on like I may have it and not have another spell for three years or something like that. Yeah, and that that can be as bad from the risk of a of a stroke in particular, um, you, know, you know, with a blood clot that, got, that sort of breaks off and goes downstream. So certainly, we're, and again, the Eliquis is not treating the AFib. It's treating some of the potential risk and side effects of the AFib, which would be the blood clots. But mm-hmm. I, I would get them to look at it, see if there's any kind of patient assistance that's available that could help you get the Eliquis, because that would be my first choice, too. But if that's a, you know, something that's really breaking the bank and is not, you know, something that you can you can sustain, there may be some other choices that can provide you the same amount or maybe just a little bit less risk reduction, but it might be worthwhile looking into that. And you say you you say Clavix or aspirin is the other choice. Yes, those are two other choices that you might, you know, can use. But there may be some others too. Just ask ask your physician, hey, I was thinking about this, talking to some other people. Is there something that would be at almost as much of a of a reduction in risk of an alternative and see what they say? But those are a couple of others that might might be something that you could take. Yeah, well, he, he had mentioned cumin and, and the... Yeah, cumin and- might be another one, too. Um, all right, Bill. Sorry about that. We got to cut you off because it, that's all the time we have. Thank you for everybody that uh, called in today, and have a great holiday season. Stay safe out there and enjoy the company of others. This has been Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.